Remember that God speaks to us through the... exiles. And just as he calls us to a new way of life because of our new birth, he now gives us a new calling, a new purpose, a new mission, if you will. We have been given new life. Peter's phrase for that is born again. God has caused us to be born again, which includes an eternal inheritance, a promised salvation, Lives of joy while we wait for the return of the Lord and a privileged place in God's plan of redemption. This means living new lives, new transformed lives, as Peter commands us to set our hope fully on that grace that is to come to us. He commands us to be holy as God is holy, to conduct ourselves in fear of God, and to love one another earnestly and to crave the proper nourishment for this new life. But for what purpose? Why has God left us in exile? If God has given us new birth, why not just bring on the new exodus right away and take his people home? Peter answers these questions in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. We come before you this morning, Lord, as living stones, stones whom you have given life, You owe us nothing. We owe you everything. Forgive us when our faith falters, and thank you for your patience. By your grace to us and your Son, Jesus Christ, give us courage and strength to worship you with our whole lives and with no reservations. Order our minds now to understand and obey your word in this letter written by the Apostle Peter to even us today at Crossway Fellowship. Amen. These verses are filled with rich images, aren't they, of our, our identity as God's people 
what God is doing in us as his people and what God is doing through us as his people, this passage really serves as the conclusion of the first section of Peter's letter, where Peter has explained our new identity as elect exiles. Our new identity is actually summarized here in chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We are now God's people. And you will notice that verse 10 ends with mercy, just as back in chapter 1, verse 3, Peter started this section of his letter with mercy. We are praise the Lord, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for his mercy. So we understand Peter's thinking this way then. He begins by explaining, unpacking our identity as exiles. He then, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, will go into the, section, uh, the second large section of his letter, our conduct as exiles. So here then, under our identity, we see that uh, our identity is marked by a new birth. That's verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. Then we are commanded to new behavior. That's verses uh, chapter 1, verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. And now we have a new calling, a new purpose. That's chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So all of these then, this new birth, this new behavior, and this new calling make us distinct as God's people. They make us his exiles in the world. He's already addressed us, Peter has, as a community in relationship to one another, love one another earnestly. And he has told us to put away all malice and all deceit and to crave uh, pure spiritual milk, that is this reasonable milk, the proper kind of nourishment that we need as God's people. God now gives us, his people, a new calling. We are now God's people called to please him and to proclaim him. We please him by offering him acceptable sacrifices, and we proclaim him by proclaiming his excellencies. So first, in verses four through eight, we are called to please him. And in verses four and five, God is pictured as a divine architect, a divine architect constructing a place and a priesthood. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, or appointed, chosen and appointed. The him is the Lord from verse 3. We have tasted that the Lord is good, and as we are coming to him now, this living stone. So Jesus is the living stone. He is the living stone because of his resurrection from the dead. That's what Peter's getting at. He is the living stone. He is risen from the, the dead. Jesus has conquered death, and his life cannot be taken from him. Now, despite his resurrection, Peter notes here, Jesus is rejected by men. He's rejected, even though his resurrection proves that God has chosen him. 
that he has been honored by God, precious. And Peter is going to elaborate on this, this choosing but rejected down in verses six and seven. But this living stone that we come to by humanity as a whole, by men, that's what Peter means, by the human race as a whole, has been rejected. But as we come to Jesus by faith, trusting in him and following him, he makes us like himself. We are like living stones. And in the architect's hands, we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So we want to unpack this imagery a little bit. It's, it's such a beautiful image, but when you start to explain it, it becomes kind of hard to put into words. But the word spiritual does not mean, by spiritual, Peter doesn't mean not, uh, non-literal. He doesn't mean that we are a spiritual house as opposed to a real house built out of building materials, brick and stone and wood. It's obvious that this is a metaphor. Instead, it should be a capital S, spiritual. Peter is talking about God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. We are being built up as a Holy Spirit house, if you will, a house for God's spirit, or you could say the Holy Spirit's house. That's what we are being built up as or into which means then that this spiritual house, this house of the Holy Spirit, is the temple. And what was the temple? The temple was the dwelling place of God. The temple was where God's glory could be witnessed, where God was to be worshipped. It was where his presence was made accessible to his people. It's where he could be known. God's presence dwelt in the temple. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying is that each, as each one of us comes to this living stone, comes to Jesus in faith, God takes us and puts us together as a people, and as a people, God's exiles in the world, we are the very dwelling place of God's presence. It is in us whom God takes up residence. Now, the Apostle Paul says something very like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Peter says that we are being built as this spiritual house or the Holy Spirit's house. So it is God the Holy Spirit who is God's presence among us as he indwells us as his people. And we know that when we come to Christ in faith, the Spirit comes to dwell in us as individuals. Each Christian, every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But Peter is getting at a picture of a, a corporate picture of us as a people that God dwells in us. We are being built as a temple. We are, if you will, the new temple. 
Peter says also we are being built into a holy priesthood. A priesthood. And Peter's kind of mixing the metaphor a little bit. We're, we're both the temple and the priesthood. Just as Jesus in the book of Hebrews is both the high priest and the sacrifice. The final, absolute, ultimate sacrifice. He's both the lamb the perfect sacrifice, and the high priest who mediates the sacrifice. So that's, this is another one of those kinds of pictures. We are both the building, the temple, and we are also the priesthood. Now, the priesthood belonged to a specific clan in the nation of Israel, and that's what Peter is drawing on is this imagery from God's people, the nation of Israel, and that belonged to the Levites, they had a special role, they had a special privilege that also included special requirements and restrictions. This was because the priests had access to God's presence. They were his special servants. And to serve in his presence, they had to undergo certain cleansings and rituals to have that kind of access to God. Peter is saying that by coming to the living stone, you and I have been qualified. We have been cleansed. We have been made right and holy before God. It is a holy priesthood made able to serve him in his presence. Peter is saying that all Christians are priests. All Christians have access to God's presence. All Christians serve God in his presence. Why? Because if we as the people of God are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if he dwells in us, then his presence is wherever we are. Wherever we are. It is this service then before God that becomes the first part of this new calling because we are being built as a spiritual house, the Holy Spirit's house. We are being built as a priesthood for this purpose, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God's ultimate goal of building us as a house for the Holy Spirit his goal in having us serve as priests in his presence is that all believers, every Christian, offer acceptable sacrifices. This is a picture of worship. This is how we please him, by worshiping him. Now, Israel's priests offered animals or, at times, grain or fruit or they had drink offerings. There were all kinds of different types of offering. They would offer all of these as sacrifices at an altar. And we know from other places in the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, that Jesus fulfilled that whole system. Jesus was the perfect and final sacrifice, especially when it comes to the atonement for sin. Jesus fulfilled all of that system. And so when Jesus died on the cross, you will remember in the temple, the place that represented the presence of God, the veil between the holy of holies 
and the other parts of the temple, that veil was rent. It was torn from top to bottom. God was ending that whole system. Not because it was a dead system, but because it had been fulfilled. It had been completed and now takes on new meaning. So instead of there being a priestly clan in a nation, a national people of Israel, God's new people are all priests. And we all serve in the presence of God. And we all offer spiritual sacrifices. And by the way, this word spiritual is the same word as spiritual house. Meaning that these sacrifices are not just spiritual sacrifices versus animal sacrifices, but they are sacrifices that are enabled or empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, there are two other verses in the New Testament that help give us an idea of what Peter's talking about here. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul makes a similar statement. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In fact, as you read these verses in Peter, for many of you, this verse probably came to mind. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There you go. That's what Peter's talking about here when he says offer sacrifices, holy and acceptable, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship or reasonable worship. This is the same word and the only other place that this word is used in the New Testament, except for earlier in 1 Peter that we looked at last time, this spiritual milk. So it's this reasonable worship. It's a proper worship. This is the right and proper response to God to present your whole lives as living sacrifices. So all of life is an altar. Just as in 1 Peter chapter 2, all of life is the temple. Because wherever we are as the people of God, there is the presence of God. So all ground is sacred ground in that sense. There's also this reference in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So, instead of offering sacrifices on an altar, when we praise God, when we acknowledge who Jesus is, his rightful place in the universe, his lordship over our lives... The fact that he has saved us from our sins, when we proclaim that, when we declare that, those are sacrifices that are being offered to God. According to Peter, this is a priestly function. We are priests offering those things just as the priests of the old system used to offer animals and grain and fruit. So in this image then, you could say we are the stones, we are the house, and we are the priests. We are the building materials, we are the building itself, and we are the servants. 
This image captures all of this about us as the people of God. And this is how we please God, by worshiping him. And what Peter is getting at then is this whole life of worship, how we live. Now, in the next verses, he reveals how God has accomplished such a marvelous thing. How is it that God has done this? How is it that God is taking us as living stones and constructing this house for the Spirit and making us a priesthood? Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. I love the way they've translated this. This is the actual word. Not it is written, but it stands in Scripture. The word of the Lord that remains forever reveals the divine architect's blueprint long before the events ever took place. And Peter now returns to these prophecies. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. The cornerstone, of course, is the, the first stone that is placed for the foundation of a building. It is the cornerstone that makes the building level, and it's the cornerstone that makes the building plumb. So the cornerstone has to be perfect. If the cornerstone is not perfect, the entire structure can be off, unstable, vulnerable to collapse. The cornerstone, then, is the leveling and the plumbing of the entire structure. This is a promise of the Messiah. The cornerstone is Jesus, just as the living stone of verse 4 is Jesus. Both the living stone and this cornerstone are chosen and precious or honored. And what is it that God is building on this cornerstone? It's much bigger than just the church. It is the entire kingdom of God. God is building his entire kingdom on this cornerstone, which is why it must be perfect. On this cornerstone of the Messiah, God builds his kingdom. He's the king, and on him is built the kingdom. And whoever believes in him, whoever believes on this cornerstone, will not be put to shame. Shame here is not talking about a feeling of shame. It's one thing to feel shame. It's another to be put to shame to actually be shamed. So what Peter is talking about here, what Isaiah is prophesying and then Peter is talking about, is that someone who trusts in the cornerstone will never be put to shame. They will never be shamed. That's true shame, the shame of being condemned, the humiliation of failing to stand up under the judgment that exposes a person as a failed usurper. Someone who trusts in the cornerstone belongs to the kingdom. 
They will never face that shame. That's why Peter says then next, so the honor is for you who believe. And this word honor is the same word as precious up above. Jesus, as the cornerstone, was chosen and honored. The honor then comes back to those who believe in him. This honor then is vindication. It is salvation from judgment. Whoever trusts in the cornerstone will stand vindicated in God's presence, never to be condemned, never to be ashamed. So in coming to this living stone, you are believing in him as the one whom God has chosen, the appointed Messiah, and are honored, vindicated, as you become part of the Holy Spirit's dwelling place, a member of this holy priesthood. But the consequence for refusing to believe is shame. Shame. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the perspective changes. The cornerstone that is perfect, chosen, and honored by God, set into place on which to build his kingdom, has been rejected by the builders and has become the cornerstone, which is no longer a cornerstone on which to build, but a cornerstone that trips them up, that causes them to stumble to be offended. And here, Peter is quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah 8, verse 15, and most of your Bibles will probably have a footnote that'll direct you to those texts in the Old Testament. God provided the perfect cornerstone, chosen, precious, for the building of his kingdom, but the builders rejected it. In other words, in their blindness, they counted it as worthless and discarded it. This rejection is the crucifixion of Jesus, the killing of the Messiah. That's what Peter's referring to. That's how he was rejected, not just ignored, but killed, murdered. And note that the builders who reject the cornerstone in verse 7, these are the men who reject the living stone in verse 4. So the builders then are whom? The human race as a whole. Now, if you take this cornerstone imagery and you go back and you follow it through, the original rejectors of the cornerstone would have been the other nations around the nation of Israel that it was David as king of Israel and David's house that was rejected. That's where the prophecy of the cornerstone comes out. And then in the Gospels, Jesus makes it clear that the cornerstone is himself and those who reject him are not the nations at large, but actually Israel's leadership. 
They are the ones then who reject the cornerstone. And Peter makes the exact same point in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, where he confronts the Jewish leadership and refers to this same psalm, Psalm 118, verse 22, in Acts chapter 4. So this is a text that Peter returns to often. And he says there that the rejectors or the builders who have rejected the Messiah are Israel's leaders and therefore the nation as a whole. Now Peter takes this image or this title of rejectors or the builders who have rejected the cornerstone and he applies it to the entire human race. He says the human race as a whole has rejected the cornerstone. And instead of honor, instead of vindication, instead of privilege, those who reject the cornerstone are shamed. They stumble. They are broken on the rock of offense. But even their rejection, even their stumbling, is part of the blueprint. Peter explains, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now... Here we find one of those difficult statements in the Bible where both human decision, human will, and God's sovereign will are at work. Why do they stumble over the cornerstone? Peter says it very clearly, doesn't he? Because they disobey the word. The word is the gospel message. The gospel message is not just an invitation. Hey, if you want to accept Jesus, come. The gospel message is a mandate to the human race. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the king. And on him, God's kingdom is built. Come to him. Repent. Turn from sin. Trust in him. So to reject the gospel is not just to turn down an invitation. It is to disobey a command of God. To reject the gospel is rebellion. They stumble over the cornerstone because they disobey the word. People, humanity is culpable, answerable for rejecting Jesus. And yet, they were destined or appointed. This is the same word as the word in verse 6, I am laying in Zion a stone. I am appointing in Zion a stone. God has appointed, chosen, laying this stone, the cornerstone, and he has appointed people to disobey the word. And so what we have here is we hold to divine election. We have to if we understand the real condition of the human race. If the human race has rejected God and is spiritually dead, 
before God, then we of our own power and our own capacities can never respond to God, can never see the cross for what it truly is. God must awaken the heart. God must give new life. God must grant faith and understanding in the cross. That is election. God initiates. That's grace. Grace is, listen, grace is, just, is not just kindness to us. Grace is sovereign moving toward us when we can't do anything for ourselves. So this, so this electing, we are elect exiles. And by the way, this word chosen here is the same word Peter uses in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when he says we are elect exiles. Jesus is chosen. We are chosen. But here is one of those places where we go, well, what about the rest of humanity? Are they responsible for their disobedience? Are they responsible for rejecting then? The Bible is very clear, yes, that we as a human race are responsible for our disobedience, for our rejection of Jesus and his gospel, the word, disobeying the word. Now, it might be in the end that we simply have to accept this tension that the Bible leaves us with. But I think that Peter's connection between the appointing of the cornerstone and the appointing of disobedience sheds a little light on it for us. And here's what I mean. By the act of appointing Jesus as the cornerstone, the necessary consequence of that sovereign work was the rejection, the unbelief in him. Now, we understand that the whole human race is like a river that is plummeting over the precipice. This is one way to understand it. We have rejected God. We live in rebellion against God. We are our own gods, convinced of our own goodness and our own authority in our own lives. The entire human race is going over the precipice in judgment. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve hell. But God in his divine grace has provided forgiveness, he's provided salvation, and he reaches down in his grace and he elects, he saves some. Undeserving. Doing nothing to earn that gracious movement, that election of God. And the rest of the human race is still responsible That act of choosing, of of saving some, results in the appointment of the disobedience of the others. Perhaps one way to put it is the, the way one writer puts it, and a writer I was reading, and I think it's put very well. The appointment of Christ as stone and the appointment of unbelievers to stumbling were not two distinct appointments, but as one divine appointment with a twofold result. Very much like when Jesus in the gospel says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, a sword that will divide father from son, mother from daughter, husband from wife. That this act of choosing 
of laying Jesus as the cornerstone for his kingdom results in this division of humanity. That's really what Peter is getting at. And that is part of the design. That's part of the blueprint. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were appointed to do. So they stumble because they disobey the word, and this is part of the design. This is part of the blueprint. Now, the reason this is important to Peter, the reason Peter goes back into these texts to explain Jesus as the cornerstone, as the, the, the blueprint for how God is taking us as his people now, as his exiles, and building building up this house, this priesthood, is because as exiles, it's vital to remember the end. That coming to the cornerstone in the end means vindication. It means salvation. Because very often in this life, it does not feel that way or appear that way. Peter writes this to encourage, to to strengthen us as God's people. This imagery implies something about the human race, too. Humanity is also building something. Do you see that? The builders rejected the cornerstone that God had chosen and honored. The builders, humanity, rejected him as unfit because the human race is also building something. The human race is building its own structure according to its own authority, according to its own morality, its own culture, its own realities and worldviews. And the human race has declared that Jesus is unfit for humanity's kingdom of self-exaltation. He is unfit for it. So the question for each one of us then is, which kingdom are you building? Or, to fit Peter's imagery here, into which structure are you being built? God's temple built on the cornerstone, the cornerstone that is chosen and honored? Are you being built into the edifice that humanity is building by its own authority? You see, we, we have an example of what humanity does when it builds its own building, and it's found in The book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 10 and then 11, where all of humanity unites to build what? The Tower of Babel. That's what the Tower of Babel was. It was a physical representation, expression of humanity's claim to autonomy to its own authority, to build its own masterpiece, its own temple, its own center of civilization. And as they are building it, what does God do? 
he dismantles it. He confuses their languages. He cha- at that point, he begins nations, people groups, ethnicities, and they can't communicate and they can't come together to build their great structure, their own kingdom, their own rule. Humanity is building something. To which building do you belong? Because the cornerstone divides the human race, and the divider is not race. It is not wealth. It is not status. Those are all our categories, aren't they? That's how we define people. That's how we see people categorize the human race by race, ethnicity, wealth, economic status, sometimes, depending on the culture, nobility, lineage. But in God's perspective, the divider is only one, belief or unbelief, faith or rejection. And faith sets apart those who belong to God. And just as the world rejects Jesus, the cornerstone, as unfit, it rejects his people as outsiders who don't belong. So you can see where Peter is going with this. Now, so these verses then, the cornerstone, this I have laid in Zion, which God is building his kingdom, to which we as God's people now belong as his exiles. These verses explain the divine blueprint behind God's building of living stones as the dwelling place for his spirit. But these verses about Jesus being the cornerstone also highlight our mission as God's exiles in the world. And what is that mission? To proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But that's for next time.